You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This episode of the EdUp Experience is brought to you by Inspirio Enterprises. Inspirio helps schools increase enrollments through innovative and cutting-edge admissions and marketing tactics. For more information, visit inspirio.com edup for offers exclusively for EdUp listeners. Our guest this week is Robert Chestnut, former Chief Ethics Officer of Airbnb. For the last four years, Robert has helped lay a foundation for ethical decision-making at Airbnb. He's also the author of Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. This book is available on Amazon, and we are very excited to have Robert come on the EdUp Experience to talk about ethical decision-making in the context of higher education. Now, Let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is Elvin Freitas. This is Joe Salustio. This is Elizabeth Leiba. And on the line, we have Rob Chestnut. Rob, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being on. We really appreciate it. So, you know, right now we're still with the whole COVID-19 crisis going on. So I want to check in. How are you doing? How are your loved ones? Where are you? How's everything where you are? Um, you're staying well. Um, it's It's been a tough time for the travel industry. So, you know, obviously yeah. things at Airbnb are, um, you know, it's it's been a an interesting period for us. Uh, but we're working through things and uh, I'm I'm sheltering here at home and healthy and my family's healthy. So uh, I've got nothing to complain about. Okay. And where are you located right now? Right now, I am up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, California. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Okay, that's great. So let's dive right in because uh, I have so many questions. We're so happy to have you as a guest. My first question is, I know that you have your book coming out. So uh, Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Fantastic title. But I wanted to know, what inspired you to write this book? Um, I think the world's changing. Um, I think for decades, there was a lot of bad behavior by leaders and by companies, but not much of it got talked about. You know, uh, I think the world expected companies to make money, drive up share prices. But I think what's happened is bad behavior is no longer swept under the rug. I think employees are increasingly speaking up about things that they see in a company that they don't like. Um, you know, I think for uh, for employees today, the place you work is your brand. And you actually want to be inspired by the mission. You want to feel like you're making a difference. So if you don't like something that you see there, now you've got this incredible tool called the Internet that can be your platform for airing frustrations and grievances. You know, I, I think the, the inspiration for the book was um, reading about the Me Too movement reading about problems at companies that were literally just down the street from us, like Uber, um, and saying to myself, ah, you know what? Um, I don't want Airbnb to be caught up in all of these things. What can we do as a company um, to drive integrity into our culture? Um, Because I think it really matters. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Hey, Rob, this is Joe. How are you doing? Hey, great. Nice to talk to you, Joe. 
Nice to talk to you too. And uh, again, just to echo what Elvin said, you know, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I, you know, I, I, first of all, I love your title, the chief ethics officer. I think that's just, just brilliant because it puts <laughs> the spotlight on ethics, right? It, 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 and it needs a spotlight. And um, so my question revolves around, you know, in it, sort of the theme of COVID-19 here, and uh, I'll connect it to higher education as, this, as a higher education podcast eventually, but, you know, um, ethics is, Ethics is necessary, as you said. Um, it's something that is much more visible because of social media. Um, but, uh, you know, this situation, this COVID-19 uh, situation has put a lot of pressure on business, on industry, on people, job loss, decision-making, where you're, you know, maybe in a small business or in our case, a university, you know, do you have students back on campus? You hedging that against revenue growth because because you're feeling the pressure of of, of loss. Does ethics take um, a stress when when uh, you know outside factors create this? I don't know a, a disruption in decision making models. Uh, yeah, I'm not even sure how to ask that question, but you know what I'm saying. Well, it, it I I said that a crisis pressure test your character. Um, I think that's true in your personal life. Um, and I think that's also true in the business sense. Um, and that's why I think integrity is particularly important in a crisis because look, you know, everyone's under stress. Um, acts of kindness and integrity, I think in times like this um, are long remembered uh, because of the impact they can have. You know, by the same token, um, if you do not act with integrity, uh, in, in times like this, it, it makes an impression um, that and can break trust that can be very hard to repair. So uh, I think more than ever, you know, a crisis like this is a test of leadership. Um, and you know, so what I look for, um, how do companies treat their employees in times like this? Um, how do businesses respond? Are, are they, do they immediately slash cost to try to hit a, a number um, and not worrying about the bigger impact that their actions can have. Um, do, do you take time to think about your stakeholders beyond just shareholders? Are you worried about your employees? Are you thinking about your customers? Are you a good partner to your suppliers and your vendors? Um, are you even using this opportunity um, to, to help out your broader communities where you do business? Um, because it's, the need is great in times like this, um, and acts of kindness and integrity, I think, are going to be long remembered. Who's the judge, you know, to, to the decision-making? Is, it, is yeah. it your stakeholders? Is it the public? Is it a combination? You know, who's judging, um, and how will we be judged as leaders during these tough times? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is, I think, there, there are a lot of judges. Um, your employees are a judge of how you act, and they may they may vote with their feet. If they don't like the way that they're treated or feel that trust is broken, um, they'll find a place that aligns with their personal values. So you may find a, these sorts of things can create a talent drain or loyalty, depending on how you handle it. Another big one is customers. Um, data, there's, a, there's something called the Edelman Trust Survey. Um, that comes out annually. The, that study and other studies are showing that more and more customers are 
making decisions about their purchases based upon their perception of the values and integrity of the company that produces the goods and services. So if you are not perceived as acting ethically out in the world marketplace, um, your customers are increasingly going to take their business elsewhere. So they are going to be judges and they're going to vote. Um, government may be a judge. You know, you know, governments may look at the way that companies act in these circumstances and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, society needs better. We need more from a company than to act this way. And the governments may react with investigations, regulation. Um, so, look, I, I think that your stakeholders will ultimately judge how you do. Um, and their reaction will have a significant impact on whether your business will survive in the long run. I, 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 uh, I, Liz is going to jump in here in a second, but voting with your feet, that's the part that, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that's true. The customer too, I, even though most customers are at least at this point, a lot of them are online. Truly it's, it's the, the, the analogy, right? They, they vote with their feet and that could just mean not buying and your employees mean they don't really need to vote. They just disappear. And that's, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the impact to businesses is, is, you know, significant when, when that's happening. So uh, I like that vote with your feet. I mean, I don't like it, but I mean, it's a great saying. Um, yeah. Well, I, so I like it. And I like it. I, you know, I love the fact that all of us in the world, um, have our perception of what is ethical and right. Um, and they may be different. There's no, you know, there, there's no saying that, you know, my view of the world ethically is going to completely align with everyone else's. Um, but I think in a general sense, there's, um, you know, a, a general cons you know, consensus around a lot of those principles. And I think all of us as human beings, look, I, I'll make decisions about products that I buy based upon, do I feel that that company's values are aligned with my own? Do I want to support them? Um, and if I like a company and feel as though it's, it's trying to do the right thing and operate with integrity, um, I'll be more likely to vote with my, with my wallet. Thanks for that. Absolutely. That, I, there's so much um, wisdom and so many little nuggets of knowledge, and, and that's why I think we love to speak with leaders like yourself that are working in the private sector because higher ed traditionally has been a little less likely to like what Joe talked about, voting with your feet and um, reiterating some of those um, little knowledge pieces that you've talked about in terms of the customer and the employees and the government and all these different stakeholders that you need to make sure are being aligned in terms of the principles and how a company is operating. And sometimes in higher ed, that kind of gets lost because it's like, we don't want to call them customers. We don't want to think of them as stakeholders. But <laughs> at the end of the day, they have yeah. a product. We have education that we're giving them and we're giving them that product. And sometimes the students have expressed that there is a lack of trust. They don't feel in terms of the ethical that the schools are necessarily doing. We've seen that obviously over the course of the past couple of decades, some somewhat of a shift where students are kind of like, are you guys doing what's in our best interest? We have all this student loan debt. And right. There, exactly. there definitely is somewhat of a, a, a disconnect schools there. Schools need to think about this, right? Schools yeah. need to think about this. Schools need to think of students as customers and stakeholders. And they need to be looking and saying, are these stakeholders being successful, you know, when they get out of school, are they getting a job? Are they 
able to achieve a level of financial success and is what we're charging them really producing value? Um, because if not, um, the traditional thinking around um, you know, the value of a college education is going to shift. And we've already seen some of that shift. You know, when I, when I was growing up, uh, college was the ticket, right? My parents mm -hmm. taught me, go to college, you want to be a success in life, work hard, get good grades, go to the best college you can, and it will be worth it for you. And back then, I think that was true. Um, today, I think people are starting to question that. I think people are looking at the high cost of a college education and questioning, are, the, are colleges actually uh, preparing students for the real world, helping put them in a better financial position? Um, and is the student debt worth it? And I think the answer is sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Um, another thing I think that's challenging is in the old days, you went to college and learned what you needed to learn. You got your skill set. You went out into the real world. You were successful financially. Um, and you spent your career uh, you know, based on that knowledge that you got in school. The world's changing too fast today. Um, we've got to be lifelong learners. We can't now say, well, I went to college for four years and then maybe to grad school for three years. Now I'm done. Um, I think we are in a world where we're constantly now going to have to be lifelong learners. And um, you know, what, we, what, you know, what we learned in college may be great, but we, we're going to have to keep going back and learning in different ways throughout our career just in order to keep up with the pace that the, that the world's moving in now. And that presents challenges for higher education. Absolutely. I saw an article um, about your creative ways to promote employee ethics and some of the things that you're doing to um, kind of spread the word in terms of uh, employee ethics and, and how to uh, make sure that this, this knowledge is being transferred. How do you do that? It's definitely a lesson that a lot of us in higher ed are not really used to being creative necessarily. We kind of um, been slow to adapt to get away from some of the stage on the stage. So what are some of the things, creative ways that you're incorporating these lessons and making sure that employees do understand the importance of customer first, integrity, ethics. What is your, what are some of your tips and tricks and strategies as far as that's concerned? Well, you know, it started, um, you know, with Uber and the Me Too movement and those issues as I, as I was talking about earlier. And, you know, I sat down with Brian Chesky, you know, the founder, you know, CEO of, of Airbnb, and we had a good conversation about this. And, you know, he asked, he said, look, how, how do companies drive integrity into their culture? How is this done? And I thought about it. I, you know, I, I, like, I started thinking about how this is done in other companies. So let's think about it. What do they do? Well, they, down, they get a code of ethics. Usually the code of ethics that they get is downloaded off the Internet from some other company or some forum <laughs> website. And you stick your logo on top, right? You put your name in the blanks, and then you email it out to everybody in the company and say, check this box and say that you've read so it. So true. Right? And yeah, so true. Right? And, yeah. and most people don't read it. And like, okay, well, that's not going to do you much good. Um, you throw a compliance poster up on the wall, you know, usually in a break room. It's got that little four-point font. Nobody ever reads it. You never see anybody standing in front of the compliance poster, right? Actually, the reason I think the lawyers and the HR people would be – 
where they would be so nervous and frightened if they saw anybody actually standing <laughs> in front of the poster and reading it, they'd be waiting for the lawsuit. Um, yeah, nobody's taking a selfie you watch, in front of the compliance poster, right? right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody's ever read one of those things. You know what? I, you know what? I, I almost took one of those posters and edited it, and in the middle of it, put in a line that said, "The first five people to contact me will get a hundred dollars each." And just waiting to see how long it would take before somebody reached out to me. And my guess is they would never reach out to me because they'd never, never. read it. Right? And then you've got these sexual harassment videos that are two hours long, created by some third party. They talk a lot about hostile work environment and the like. And everybody dreads watching them. Nobody enjoys it. And it, it struck me that those are not things that you would do if you really cared about integrity in your company. Those are cover, you know, really cover your butt, check a legal box, but yeah, they don't send that. the kind of message. What do you do to send a message? I said, well, you got to get human. You've got to get authentic. So, you know, one thing that we did at Airbnb is we put together our own code of ethics. We use our own language. We speak using Airbnb values and mission, and it was created by a group within the company with input from, you know, we want, you want diversity. You know, diversity is such a strength in companies, and you need that in your code of ethics because we all have different backgrounds. We've all got different socioeconomic backgrounds. We co-op in different parts of the country, the world, different religions. We need input from a lot of different backgrounds and experiences in order to, to have a code that works for a diverse company. Um, and in doing that and in creating it, you, um, you get buy-in from all the different stakeholders. So you got somebody from sales, somebody from marketing, somebody from customer support, an engineer, a finance person. So you start by building a code that's really yours. And then you have an honest, authentic conversation with employees about it. Um, at Airbnb, everybody has um, an orientation week, their first week. And about 20 to 25 classes. Well, I started doing an ethics class and, they was, and I said, look, I want an hour. And they said, Rob, there's no way. We're not gonna punish these people their first week with an hour long <laughs> ethics class, come on. And I said, no, Punishment. We're, not, we're not gonna talk John Stuart Mill and Plato. You know, we're gonna get practical. And we, we, what we do is we give people, we have a dozen different scenarios but they're not hypothetical scenarios. They're things that have actually happened at Airbnb with employees. Okay. And we say, we, we ask people, do you think this violates the code or not? And why should it violate our code? And it's an hour long discussion with a group of people, maybe, you know, depends on the size of the group, 20, 50, whatever. Um, it's the number one ranked class in orientation at the end of the service. Um, people are shocked that they actually enjoy it. Um, and we do these talks all around the company. I've visited every office in Airbnb all around the world um, and had these conversations. And what I've found is that people really like the idea that they're working for a company that cares about this stuff. You know, I had a woman a couple months ago come up to me after one of the talks, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said to me, Rob, I left my last job at this big tech company because my boss kept propositioning me. And mm -hmm. I didn't trust enough at my last company to report it, so I left. And I came here. And she said, you have no idea what it means to work for a company that really cares about this stuff. 
Um, if I if I had heard a leader stand up in front of the room and talk about why this is important the way that you just did, I would report. I would, she said. And it struck me that people want to hear directly from a leader in an authentic human way that this really is important. Um, I hear people tell me all the time, look, if some if some mid-level HR manager delivered this message, or if it were some third party that came in as a consultant, it wouldn't mean anything. It's got to come from a leader, and it's got to be in a human scenario-based way that people can relate to and enjoy working with. Um, but that's one way we've driven it into the culture, just by having that kind of conversation. So I, I wanted to jump in before everybody else does. <laughs> Rob, it's mm-hmm. again. So. Uh, thanks again for everything you've provided so far. So uh, here's what I want to dive into. Um, tell me a little bit about your day. What is it that you're doing every day there at Airbnb <laughs> as chief ethics officer? I mean, I'm very curious. Though, what is it yeah. like for you? Um, you know what? We, it's not a one-person-owns ethics approach. You know, I, I'm wary of the – I call it the Moses syndrome. You know, one person goes up to the mountaintop, comes back with these stone tablet rules and makes all the decisions. You know, that, that's not, I don't think that's healthy. Um, I, I, so what we've done at Airbnb is we have, I've got about 30 people around the company, around the world, who are ethics advisors. Okay? So these are people who work, they've got a day job. They're writing code. They're handling customer problems. They're in the business. But they volunteer their time to be ambassadors for the ethics program. So the point behind it is, if people have got ethical questions, they're scared to go to lawyers. They're scared to go to HR. Nobody wants to go to legal, right? But they'll go to a friend. They'll go to somebody in in the hallway down the office. And so what we found is that these ethics ambassadors are getting questions now from employees all the time. We got almost 100 last quarter, okay? And... And so what happens is the ethics advisors will then come back to the group. If it's less, it's an easy question. They'll come back to the group and say, hey, here's what was posed. What do you think? And so part of my job is leading a discussion with the group around um, what's going on in this scenario and what's the right answer um, that we should provide to people to give, to give guidance to employees who are looking for help. Um, I also work with – there are we have a hotline. There are reports of misconduct or ethical violations. I work with a small group of investigators in the company to lead the investigations. Um, Sometimes I talk to the employees directly, uh, and then I play a role in deciding what the consequences should be. Um, And it can be anything from an oral warning to a written warning. We've demoted people. Um, We've uh, suspended people without pay, and we fired people. So playing a role in those things. Um, and then also, I think it's being a voice inside the company when big decisions are made um, mm-hmm. to ensure that we're thinking about all the stakeholders. So we're not making a decision just because we've got to think about the finances or just because we're thinking about host or just thinking about guest. You know, my role is to be a voice for, you know, all the stakeholders and make sure their perspectives are being considered, because if you're thinking about how all stakeholders are impacted by a decision, you're more likely to come up with what I think is the ethical, the, the, the most ethical decision. Um, most importantly, I think it's just being a voice. Um, 
-hmm. if you create an environment where it's comfortable to talk about integrity and Mm -hmm. you create an environment where you say as a leader, integrity matters, just by saying it, it influences people. I I think science science teaches us this. Um, Integrity is contagious, but so is a lack of integrity. So if you see Mm -hmm. leaders or if you see others acting in unethical ways, um, you are more free to act in ways that are unethical as well. But if you feel as though you are in an environment where integrity matters and where leaders are acting that way, you step up your game and you are going to behave with integrity, more likely to behave with integrity as well. So it's part of my job is to create that environment. That's what I work on. You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hey guys, this is Joe, and I just want to remind you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. On the website, you're going to find all of our past episodes that we've done with some of the top leaders in higher education today, talking about innovations, ideas, and issues facing our industry today, finding out what may happen in the future, what higher ed needs to look like moving forward. So again, check out www.edupexperience.com. Now, let's get back to the action. Is, is making art, making ethical decisions, um, because it's never black and white always. I mean, sometimes it's probably black right. and white. When, if this, is a, this is a yes, this is a no, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do this. When you're talking about really high-level business decisions and, you know, sort of tagging this back on to higher education and, and going back to the example of, of a lot of traditional universities looking to uh, – really wanting to and needing to open up in, a, in the fall, um, mm-hmm. parents and kids and adults at home wondering if, if it's safe to attend – uh, in the fall, uh, states, uh, uh, you know, as a stakeholder, the state guidelines for, you know, whether things are going to be safe or not. And so we're left in, in the higher education. I think a lot of organizations, Airbnb, I'm sure, is going to be involved in this too, making what we believe are ethical decisions. Um, it, it, but it's not black and white. It's this sort of gray, mix of gray area where maybe one decision could be looked at as ethical and then somebody else looks at it and says, maybe that wasn't so ethical. So, so how much does communication transparency play in the part of making ethical decisions um, at at a high level? Yeah, you're right. It's not always an easy, clear cut. Now to use higher education, you know, the, uh, the academic admission scandal, you know, over, that's come out over the last year and a half. That's a great example yeah. of something that we'd all agree is ethically wrong, right? Yeah. Lying yeah. and misrepresenting in order to get into college. That's flat wrong. We can all agree to it. That's an easy ethical uh, situation to address. But uh, take, you know, take another example of, you know, is it ethical to open up your college campus in the fall? Well, that's probably going to depend on your perspective. Um, there are, you know, there are gray areas here. Um, I think there's not going to be an easy answer to these things. My, I think my point, and like you, you read my book, Intentional Integrity, it, it doesn't have the answers to all of your ethical questions. I, I, I wanna, don't want to misrepresent what it's about. It's a framework for thinking, of thinking about these questions and a recognition that, it is important 
that ethics be your factor, that you try. So what isn't ethical would be for a college to say, um, we, we need the money. We've got, to, we've got to hit our financial goals here. So we're opening up. Figure out a way to get, this, get that campus open. I don't care how you do it. Go off and figure it out and don't come back until you've got the answer. Okay? That's an unethical approach. Um, an ethical approach would be um, we obviously would love to open because that, that's the best experience that we can provide students, and that's our mission. Our mission is to promote learning and provide a great learning environment. That's ideal. However, we've also got an ethical obligation um, to provide a safe environment for students and for faculty and for staff. Um, so um, how can we navigate the, you know, what our desires and our mission are um, with the needs, with the health and safety needs, because they're all important. And, uh, you know, it, if we can if we can open up the campus in a way that um, we feel can be done in a manner consistent with the health of all involved, then we're going to do it. And if we can't do it that way, uh, then we're not going to open, and we'll have to deal with the consequences. But we'll have to come up with an alternative. But recognizing that you've got that obligation, um, I think, is what what it's got to be about. Yeah, I think you're right, and. I, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, because I want to be transparent with you, I had like 10 of my, my colleagues in traditional higher edu education know about this podcast and, and wanted me to ask you directly what they should do. So now I can't quote you because you, you know, I'm just, I'm just messing around. But I, I, don't, I, have guess, a, I uh, don't have an answer, but I do, but yeah. I do think, you know, you, you've got, you know, ethics isn't always clear, right? You know, you, yeah, you've exactly. got to, you, but you've got an obligation to, to, to put everyone's health and safety um, uh, at the forefront. And and uh, recognize that as an obligation. Now that doesn't mean that you can't. Th th there might not be good circumstances where you can open things up, but maybe it's a partial opening. Maybe you don't have classes larger than 20 people, for example. Maybe you do some classes, more classes remote. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe you don't have large sporting events or large concerts. So maybe you've got a quasi opening. Maybe you can get some of the best of both worlds. Um, right. But that's going to be an update each individual school and the circumstances. And Lord, I, I have no idea what the world's going to look like in August, you know, because hmm. that's still, you know, four months away. Um, I never would have dreamed we'd be in this position three months, you know, four months hmm. ago. So we'll, yeah. we'll, I'm sure more is going to evolve. Awesome. Now, so, I, one more, go ahead. Elton. Uh, I'm monopolizing <laughs> again. I'm going to stop. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Um, it's okay. I just want to follow up now. Do you? I assume, uh, Rob, you would recommend that you. It sounds like the process here. It's it's a mindset first of all, right? Well, to lead with integrity yeah. and think about ethics when you're making decisions. So it's it's a mind. You got to change your mindset. You're not talking about the dollars here. We're talking about the safety and security and your mission. Going back to your mission, which I think is beautiful. Um, so I just want to follow. Up. Are you saying that? It, it's a good idea to get the information from all the different stakeholders as to, you know, what are their thoughts and, and like, what's that decision-making process? Because ultimately it sounds like, especially at the college level, like uh, the president has to make a decision. It's like, it comes down to one person. Maybe it's the same thing at Airbnb. Yeah. You kind of say, Hey, right. this, this is what we all think, but you have to make the decision. So they need to gather that information from everyone and then they need to make a decision. So kind of like right. tell us the process there, you know, that system, how does that, 
Well, yeah, ultimately really it's going to come down to one person, and that's going yeah. to be the a big decision. Um, you know, like what we're talking about here about reopening and what the circumstances are. Um, a top leader is going to have to be directly involved, and you know, look, sometimes you can get a consensus. Sometimes you can get leaders in a room and talk through it and come to a consensus. But sometimes it's gray. There's not a clear-cut answer. You know, one of the people I admire, I admire Adam Silver at the NBA. I spent some time with him in writing the book. He was gracious enough to give me time. Um, he faced a number of uh, ethical crises, right? He had um, – I believe that the NBA's uh, shutting down of the season sort of was what sent the message – across the United States that this is serious. And he, he made that decision quickly, yep. but he, he's got such good judgment. He had another similar issue I write about in the book um, where the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers was uh, caught on, on a recording oh, yeah. uh, making that. racist mm-hmm. statements, Donald Sterling, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, one of the things that Adam Silver talked to me about was how he'd only been on the job a couple months. And wow. he said, it, it happened so quickly, Rob. He said, I first heard the, uh, heard the recording on a Saturday morning. And by Tuesday, I had had to hand down the most, the harshest punishment ever levied on a major sports owner. Um, and so the world comes on you quickly. You don't have a lot of time. No. You've got no. to gather input from key stakeholders. Um, but ultimately, you you need to be measured, but you also have to know when to be decisive. And I, I admire the fact that I think he's he finds a way to listen, gather input, um, but he also has a good sense, sort of an innate sense of this is the right thing to do. Um, mm. And uh, I, I think he's been a terrific leader for the NBA. That's just one example. There are Eric Holder, I think, is another uh, another person that I spent time with for the book. You know, Eric was the Attorney General of the United States and somebody that I knew back from the early days of being a prosecutor. Um, but, you know, I think really good leaders um, listen with humility, um, but, uh, but are able to gather what really matters informationally uh, quickly in a crisis um, and, and have good judgment about doing the right thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Liz, how is your, le- yeah. How, thank you. How is your leadership? in terms of how you handle everything that's coming at you. Like you said, as a good leader, you have to be decisive. And we've seen in education, sometimes there's hesitation under these circumstances. Most schools have been really responsive and, and trying to be as, as, as responsive and, and as quick as possible to deal with this crisis. How has your leadership and your response to crisis, making sure that all of the key stakeholders are calm and that you've delivered any messages that need to be delivered. How has that changed with this um, COVID-19 situation? Obviously, Airbnb, the travel industry, you guys are at the center of a lot of what's going on. The restaurant industry, um, travel is another one where um, it, it definitely directly affected. How have you been able to navigate all of these? Well, you're always learning. You're always learning. I don't, uh, you, you know, you'd love to believe that by having a good sense of your mission, your purpose, and your values, that helps prepare you for a crisis. Um, and I think sometimes a crisis reveals it. Um, but you know, you you never feel like you're you know 100% ready. You feel like you're you're learning as you go. Um, but look, Airbnb has long had a multi-stakeholder approach. 
So I'll give you a great ethical dilemma that Airbnb faced. Um, you know, we had a, no, a number of guests had reservations. Let's say you made reservations for spring break in Italy. You were going to get away for a week in Italy this year, in, in uh, early April. Um, you reserve an Airbnb. And by the way, a number of Airbnbs have strict cancellation policies. So you made the reservation back in January. Strict cancellation. If you don't show up, you still owe the money. Um, well, a lot changes between January and April. Right? So now you legally can't even get to the villa in Italy because you're locked down. Italy's not letting you come in and, and travel. You can't leave your house legally. Um, so what happens to that money? Does mm. the guest have to eat the money? Because they're the ones that agreed to this policy. Um, or should Airbnb declare an extraordinary circumstance and override these policies? In which case, hosts as landlords are now out a lot of money that they were banking on, literally. Yeah. Um, where, so what do you do in a circumstance like this? And how does Airbnb's financial situation play into this? Because you know, Airbnb um, won't make money um, if the reservation doesn't go through. Um, how does the community's interest play into this? In other words, um, if we say to people, we're not going to cancel the reservation, are we encouraging people to travel at a time where that's really not the right thing for the world? Right? So that's how you, but you lead with your principles. Um, and that is that, that all of our stakeholders are important. None can be ignored. So um, what we did was we allowed guests to cancel the reservations. We declared an extraordinary circumstance. But then what we did, um, we put aside an extraordinary sum of money, $250 million. And what we did is we, we said that we are going to reimburse hosts 25% of what they would have made on the canceled reservation. So at least they'll get some money from us. Now, we didn't have to do that legally, but ethically we felt as though we couldn't simply – give all the you know give the guests the, the money back and not do anything for the host um oh. and then our founders each kicked in three million dollars to additionally help hosts that were in need and employees um all uh, two thousand employees donated uh travel credits that airbnb had given them um to raise another million dollars for hosts so wow. I think you know, there's a recognition that we, we want all stakeholders are important and we're trying to do the right thing, even in a very, very trying time. That's principles. Wow. That's yeah. leading with principles. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. That's well the yeah. definition of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Joe, do you have another question for him? Uh, no, I'm good. Uh, let's, let's give him your two, uh, your two really hard okay. questions. <laughs> All right, right. You softened me up, right? You've been... <laughs> That's right. So now that's not a yeah. tough one. Now you're gonna, uh, you're gonna throw me. All right. Uh, I feel like we could talk all day. I have so many more questions, but I, you know, mindful of your time. I, so thanks again for your time. Last two questions. Uh, number one, what would you like to be remembered for? Now you can talk about personal, professional, up to you. And number two, and you touched upon this a little earlier, but if you can kind of expand on it a little bit. What does the future of education look like to you? Yeah. Um, so what I'd like to be remembered for, it's interesting. I had a, there's a boss 
um, that I had at eBay. His name's Maynard Webb. He led the technology group. Um, and Maynard used to talk about uh, a park bench. And what Maynard's goal was, he said, you know, when I'm retired uh, and I'm sitting on a park bench, um, it would I would love to be thought of uh, by people that I worked with, that they would cross the street and come over to the park bench and have a conversation with me, you know, 20 years later, um, and and you know, get, want to give me a hug, uh, and and I that so I, I think it's this idea that you want to feel like you had an impact, and yeah. but you also you want to feel like uh, people understand that you care for them, you've got empathy, so leading in a way that helps develop people that they'd want to say thank you for, you know, working with me and also leading with empathy so that people know that you genuinely care. Um, and Maynard used the park bench sort of as the symbol of that, which I thought was great. Um, uh, but yeah, that's what I'd love. I'd love to feel like I've, I've had an impact on other people in such a way that they'd want to cross the street and sit on the park bench with me for a little while. Um, <laughs> on the, uh, on the future of education, um, yeah, we touched on this earlier. Um, I think education is um, is, is facing some change. Uh, is facing change. Uh, they the old the old model doesn't quite work anymore. And I think colleges are going to have to evolve to to be centers of lifelong learning, as opposed yeah. to mm -hmm. one time, you know, four you know four year centers of learning. I think they're going to have to evolve to to do a better job of being an economic. They have to make economic sense. You you cannot have a model where kids are coming out of school twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in debt and making and having trouble finding a job, um, and maybe exactly. even um, you know not being competitive uh, salary wise. You know with peers that. Um, learn a trade. Um, and, you know, by the way, you know, speaking of trade, that's got to be an important part of education as well. There are, for some people, um, learning a trade is of incredible value to the world and can be a life, could, could be a, a great way of making a living. Um, we need to, to have learning models where people can, can get that sort of education without the expense of of a traditional four-year college, so I, I think we are we are seeing a shift that is in its early stages um, around uh, around around education. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Um, I think the shift has been um, stunted a bit by the wisdom that all of the parents got when they were growing up that we've reflexively wanted to pass on to our kids, right? I was mm -hmm. taught, you got to go to college to get ahead, right? Mm -hmm. And it worked for me. So um, I have to be careful, though, that the the advice that, that my parents gave me was in a different time and a different place. And it may not be quite as applicable as it, as, uh, as it once was. So, and I think college has been able to sort of get by for a while because for so long, it was the traditional wisdom that you needed to go to college. I think now people are questioning it. And I think that questioning process is healthy for schools, actually, 
Um, but I think it's also going to push them to evolve. And I think schools that um, can successfully, that can evolve and then aren't afraid of change, but can embrace it, um, are going to be the most successful in the next 100 years. Love it. Well said. <laughs> well amazing. said. I think we all agree that. That was amazing. Rob, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate having you as a guest on the Ed Up Experience. Thanks again, Rob. Well, thank you guys for having me. Anybody that, that's listening that wants to reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, the book, Intentional Integrity, um, be in bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores. You can pre-order it now. You can get more information by going to www.intentionalintegrity.com. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh -huh. uh, thank you. Thanks, we'll make sure we will add that to the show notes so people know how to get in contact with you. I think people can see your book and buy it if they want to. So we really appreciate it. So there you have it, our conversation with Rob Chestnut. Joe, Liz, what do you think? Liz, go to it. I, you know what, the, the last point that he made about, you know, leading by principle and, and really believing in what you stand for, that really, like, struck home for me. Because I think sometimes in education, I want to be critical, but we tend to, we get a tradition or something stuck in our head of this is what education is, this is what it means, this is my role, this is what I'm supposed to do. And we... I think sometimes lose sight of the, the principle behind that, like it's about the stakeholder, it's about the student, or it's about the customer, it's about the, there, there are so many different stakeholders, but at the core of that, we have to provide a great service and um, deliver for our students. And sometimes I think that gets lost in the shuffle with so much of the other pomp and circumstance and things of that nature. And, and, and what he talked about was kind of just like, just like put up or shut up they they knew that they had to stand by their <laughs> principles and they came up with the dollars to do it and they, they he had like three four different creative ways that they were like you know what let's make sure that no one loses out here and and i would like to see us in education think about that like students are walking out with this tremendous debt and we have schools and we have government intervention we have all these different elements and and can we just get back to our core values and and what he spoke about there really spoke volumes to me about airbnb of them being very principled and, and sticking with their values and what they they really stand for yeah that's great like you know here's here's my thing like i higher ed has been punched in the face with ethics like not not that we've ever had <laughs> you know not that there's ever been a lack, a lack of ethics but if you think about you know, um, educational models, return on investment, growing student mm -hmm. debt, you know, yeah. then then it's amplified by by coronavirus and whether sure. um, uh, we should be returning money to students. You had the mm -hmm. whole admissions thing at those colleges, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Varsity Blues deal. I mean, so it's this growing, you know, decision-making paradigm that comes in uh, with ethical decision-making. And we still, I say we as higher education in general, because we're a part of that, um, whether we mm -hmm. work for traditional or non-traditional schools, but people are, are going to be faced with a really hard decision of what to do. And mm -hmm. we talk about the importance of ethics and what we do. Uh, we are higher education faced with an ultimate decision. Um, and it's and the underpinning and the hard part of those decisions are financial. Do you open because you need to be financially uh, sustainable at the risk of, of uh, contributing to a uh, 
you know, increasing number of uh, cases of the coronavirus? Do you not open and push it to the next semester? And, and, you know, will you survive that? I mean, so this question of survival becomes a really big part of a decision or, or loss, financial loss. And that changes the way people think about things. And uh, that's when ethics can become lost. And, uh, yeah. you know, we have to so do true. a careful job of, of sticking to our principles and making the best decision for all the stakeholders. But it's not going to be easy. And I, I don't envy any college president out there who has to make that decision. I, I give great respect to these people who are having to do that. So that's that's my biggest takeaway is what we're facing in our industry. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fantastic takeaway. I think for me was when he said such powerful words. Those who lead with integrity and kindness will be remembered during this time. Wow, that just blew me away. That's so true. And those who don't will also be remembered oh, yeah. in, in a negative way, you know. So yeah. for those out there listening who are in leadership positions, remember those powerful words. I mean, this is coming from someone who works in the private sector, the Airbnb, you know, billion dollar company. I mean, he knows a little bit what he's talking about. So it's good to have perspective from outside of higher ed. I feel like sometimes higher ed is so insular and they only want to hear mm-hmm. from each other and that's it. And it's like, well, then I'm higher ed. They don't know what to talk about. No, they still know there's still a correlation there. So I, I just thought that was extremely, extremely powerful. He had so many good uh, golden nuggets, but those two words and, and um, um, you know, what he talked about was just, it's just very powerful to me. So huge takeaway. And I agree with you, Joe. I, I don't envy college presidents right now. It's, it's a tough, tough situation that um, hopefully they get a lot of uh, feedback from folks who are in higher ed, uh, their team, and say, listen, this is where I think we should go. And they get their intel and they make the right decision. Because the most important thing is you don't want to risk lives. And that's that's key right now. You know, you're risking lives and for dollars and that's totally unethical so unnecessary don't do that so anyway another fantastic episode thank you thank you joe thank Thank you you, Bob. thank you everyone for supporting and listening until next time hope you enjoyed that episode to learn more about the edup experience please visit edupexperience.com Dot com. That's edupexperience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Joe Lustio, Elizabeth Leiber, and Elvin Freitas. <laughs>